0: Well, it's with a great sense of anticipation that I've been um, looking forward to coming here today. But I have to tell you that some preachers are very keen to avoid um, preaching on Pentecost Sunday. What is this bizarre stuff about the coming of the Holy Spirit with wind and fire? What are these other tongues? What's the point of it all? How is it relevant to us today? I want to uh, ask and try to answer in this medley of questions, just three. One, who is the Holy Spirit? Two, what could he offer us? And three, how might we respond to him? So first, let's try and look at who is the Holy Spirit. Um, In the old translations, they used to call him the Holy Ghost, which made it even more spooky. Um... The Holy Spirit is not some vague influence, not some ghostly power, but he is God in action. That's who the Holy Spirit is, God in action. And the first followers of Jesus gradually came to see what that meant. But it was a bit like a three-act drama, as far as I can see. Act 1... The people of God that we 've been singing about this morning recognize that there is just one God over them. Ancient peoples tended to think that they, each one had got his own God, and the people of Israel you see it gradually as, as, as the Old Testament goes on, you see that conviction dawning and growing stronger that there is not one not, not loads of gods but just one God, the source of all there is the power that sustains the universe. And amazingly, amazingly, he cares for human beings. And all other gods, the Hebrews in their own language, they called nothings. We translate it idols. And by the time of the first century, this was the deep conviction of Israel. And God was ready... To conclude Act 1 of the drama, he had shown them that there is one God over all, and he was ready to move on to Act 2. Act 2 spoke of God not just over us, but alongside us. This act is awesome. It's pretty short. It's almost incredible. That the one and only God should care so much about us, that he came among us as a Jewish man, but more than man, the one who embodied God and made him comprehensible to human beings, brought him onto the stage of human history. And there were two great aims as Jesus came into the world. One was to show, in the terms of a human life, what God's character was really like and if you want to know what God is like take a long, long look at Jesus Christ the other was to take this is the mind bending thing that God, the utterly pure source of all there is was willing to take personal responsibility for the muck and the sin and the greed and the lust in this world, not of course for what that does to each other, that's what we do, but all of these bad things that we do, creates a wall of alienation between us and God, and it was that wall that he was willing to have come crashing down on himself, and gradually his followers came to realise that Jesus was this person, they were struck by his impact, They were wowed by his teaching. They looked at his perfect life. They were blown away by his miracles. They were gobsmacked by his claims. They were in awe of his death. And they were filled with joy at his resurrection. And all of this stuff was totally against the um, Jewish faith in which they had been brought up. The faith that is as passionately monotheistic as Islam is today. And these monotheistic Jews gradually were forced to believe that this God over them had become the God alongside them. I remember uh, learning this when I was playing cricket in days gone by. At our school, we had um, a cricket pro who had both batted and bowled for England, and he was a tough old boy. And um, when we were sort of batting in the first 11 nets, I was a bowler, I have to say, and I was just dregs as a batsman. But he would stand halfway down the, the net, and he would just throw balls and then he would uh, come and show me about this cover drive, and he'd say, do it like this, my boy, do it like this. And his knee would be over it, his nose, he'd be smelling the ball, the thing would flow, uh, and this was a magnificent cover drive. And when I tried it, my foot was nowhere near it, my nose was not over it. It It's just a shambles. Do it like this, but I couldn't do it like this. And that's the trouble about Act Two. It's great to have God over us and to have God alongside us, but it just shows up the incompetence in our own lives. And so the stage was set for Act 3 of the Divine Drama. And that is what began on Pentecost Sunday, the first great feast after Jesus had been executed. It was the church's opening birthday. You can't trace the Christian church back any farther than Pentecost. It was a marvellous party that God threw. It was unlike any other party. It started early in the morning. The party goers were accused of being drunk and disorderly. Um, it spilled into the streets with such joyful flair that um, some 3,000 Onlookers from all over the world. that's what all those funny names mean. It's simply saying this is universal. People from all over discovered on that day um, that they had not only come to a great party, but that something new had happened, something had come inside their very lives. the spirit of the living God, God over us, God alongside us, God within us. That was his plan. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit was there from the foundation of the world. He was there inspiring the prophets. He was there equipping kings and special people like um, Samson and Gideon. But in the Old Testament days, there were always three snags about this spirit of the living God. It is not for you and me not for every Tom, Dick, and Harry, but for some very special people. Might be a prophet, might be a king. It might be uh, a, like a man like Bezalel, who was a tremendously skilled um, worker with, um, uh, with, with, with with wood and with um, metal. The Spirit of God was restricted to few people. And secondly, you, you don't find, as you study the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, um, I, I, I did a book in this area once, and I, I was fascinated to find that the Holy Spirit is is not personal in the Old Testament. It's naked power. It's the ruach Adonai. It's like the wind of God that whistles down the wadis in Palestine. This mighty power, but it's not personal. And the third snag is that it wasn't permanent either, because you might have the Spirit of God. Um, Like Samson. And then you turn your back on him and the spirit sadly departs from a Saul or a Samson. Not for everybody, not personal and not permanent. But at Pentecost everything changed. The spirit was from now marked with all the character of Jesus Christ. It was personal. It was the spirit of Jesus, as the New Testament puts it. Of course, Jesus was filled with the spirit. And when the spirit came upon people at Pentecost, it was not naked power. It was the spirit of Jesus. And secondly, of course, it was um, for everybody. For all who would give him a resting place, a welcome in their lives unlike the restricted opportunities in the Old Testament. And the most wonderful thing of all, this Holy Spirit could never be withdrawn. Once he's lodged in your life, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Those three great snags of the Old Testament revelation were all overcome. Before Pentecost, the disciples were very much like uh, a lot of people in the church today. They believed in God. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, they um, believed he died for them. Uh, they even believed that he was risen from the dead. But they were crippled with fear, like many churchgoers, who don't want to put their head above the parapet on Monday mornings. They locked themselves in the upper room. There was no joy um, there was no conviction, uh, like somebody uh, going through the customs. Uh, there was nothing to declare, and um, there was no desire whatsoever to declare it. But when the Spirit of Jesus entered their hearts, all that changed. Jesus had promised his Holy Spirit would come. At the very beginning of Acts, we find him saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, it happened at Pentecost. And so Paul's words, written to Christians gathered from the waterfront and the brothels of of Corinth, came true. The kingdom of God is not talk, it is power. You know that verse, it's 1 Corinthians 4.20, it's well worth learning on Pentecost Sunday. The kingdom of God is not talk, but power. It's all the difference between cycling and driving in a car. It's all the difference between rowing and putting up your sail and having the wind drive you along. God over us, God alongside us, God in us. That's the plan. That's who the Holy Spirit is. Question number two, what can he offer us? He offers us power. That's perhaps the great thing. Power first to transform character. These disciples, as we call them, were actually a bunch of rabbits. They had run away at Jesus' arrest. They didn't want to be associated with him. And now... They're on fire. There is a massive transformation. Thomas was changed from being a doubter to being full of confidence. Peter was changed from uh, being a denier that he ever knew Jesus to being um, a a statesman-like and confident leader. And so it goes on. This whole bond, band of disciples were changed. And when you receive the Holy Spirit... Character gets changed. Maybe gradual, maybe sudden, but there is always change when the Holy Spirit comes on board. Uh, one of the most graphic uh, examples I know is sitting in this church today, but I'm not going to embarrass him. Uh, another is a man called Tom Torrance. Uh, Tom Torrance. And um, uh, he, he was in the Ku Klux Klan... Um, the white supremacy movement in the United States in the days when there was all this tension with um, black people, and he was actually in the White Knights, which was the elite bunch of the Ku Klux Klan, and he was dedicated to burning down black churches and schools and killing people, and he'd done lots of it. And eventually, he was run down. In a clash with the um, uh, with the FBI, um, his mate uh, was killed. Uh, he had 19 bullets in his body and he was put into a top security prison, um, uh, the plan was for the rest of his life. When he was in that prison, having nothing to read, he was in a cell... And he started reading what they give them, which is the Bible. And he'd never read it before. And he read this. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own self? And that brought him to Jesus Christ. This man, broken, wounded, at the very bottom of his fortunes cast himself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. And the spirit of Jesus came into him and began to change him. And instead of that hate for black people, there was love. Instead of that violence, there was graciousness. And this so impressed people that in due course he was released. Later on, actually, he was was ordained and he became the head of the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C., That man is about about the most gentle and gracious person I know. And he was a killer. That is a graphic example of what the Holy Spirit can do. Do you know anything of that part? And then there's a power to create unity. If you've still got um, your Bible open, you might glance at, at verse 44 and of Acts 2, and you see what striking unity um, that there is there. Um, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Um, disunity in the church is a major curse. But when the Holy Spirit is at home, unity comes. Because the spirit is the spirit of unity and Satan is the spirit of disunity. Unity and mission belong together. You cannot do anything in advancing the kingdom of God unless you're, you're united behind it. And so you see this unity in the early church was very remarkable. You had social unity between slaves and masters. That was unknown in antiquity. You had national unity between Romans and barbarians. They couldn't stick each other, but the gospel transformed both. You had ecclesiastical church unity between these Jews and these guys in Samaria whose guts they loathed, and for hundreds of years they wouldn't do anything in common. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember uh, having a very graphic example of that when I was in Jerusalem a uh, good many years ago. It was a days of great tension, as there still are of course, between the Arabs and the Jews uh, in that city and in that country. And I met a little old Jewish woman, a little woman like this, all bent over, wonderful wrinkled shining face. She was a Christian believer, she was a messianic Jewess. And she presented to me two adopted daughters who were Arabs. Christian Arabs. How about that? Nobody, no President of the United States, nobody's been able to be able to solve the Jewish-Arab situation in that country. But here and there you see examples of what the Spirit of Jesus Christ can do in unity. Do you know that unity in this church? Because if you don't, we're not going to see much fruitfulness in life to the fall in the spring. And then this power to smash materialism. Um, in chapter 2, um, verse 45, we find that they had all things in common. They'd sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as they had need. Maybe that was a bit extreme, but it certainly showed that they had smashed the idol of materialism. Materialism is the biggest danger in the West today. It makes no sense to think that we can all have an increasing um, n- national product, an in- increasing slices of a very limited cake. It is crazy, and we are dominated by things. But when the Holy Spirit gets the grip of our lives... We begin to sit loose to our possessions. I think of a top doctor I knew who won all the prizes uh, at London in his training. His father was a Harley Street specialist and he was scheduled to go the same way. Instead, he went as a missionary doctor to Nepal and was part of the amazing growth of the church there. Uh, I think of a girl I met in Edinburgh when I was speaking up there and um, she was working uh, in the poorest part of the town and I said, what did you do before you came here? oh, she said, I was a stockbroker or I think of somebody where we just done our mission in, in Chipping Norton this guy was the leading surgeon and he is now the vicar of Chipping Norton he gave it up because he felt the call of the Lord. And it smashed the materialistic goals in his life. Now, not all of us are called to do graphic things like this. But we're all called to smash the idol of materialism. The New Testament says, be content with what you have. And Britain is classic for not being content with what it has. And share what you have. And we're not very good at that either. you find those in Hebrews 13. And so, I would ask, do you know anything of that um, power to smash materialism in your life? And then there was power for passionate worship. Much Jewish worship in those days, like ours today, was dull, formal and predictable. What a difference when the Spirit came. They were praying when the Holy Spirit fell. They continued in the apostles' prayers. Prayer is always a mark of spiritual power because it's saying, I can't do it, but Lord, you can. Please go for it, Lord. That is what prayer does. And then the praise, too, was so expectant. Um, They devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers and or the, the worship day by day, um, they they worshipped in the temple and in the homes and so on. Um, they were praising him in tongues. If that is your gift, then use it. Uh, if it isn't your gift, then praise him anyway. Um, wherever there is a new move of the Holy Spirit, there is a new song. So don't complain about the new songs. It's part they may not be very brilliant, and they may be dead in ten years' time. It doesn't matter. The fact is, it's now, it's how the, young, the people of God want to express their worship to God today. Praise is a mark of the Spirit in us. It's his joy bursting the banks. Does prayer and praise figure big in your life? And then there's power to be open about your faith. In uh, verse 22, you find Peter standing up, this man who ran away before a servant girl, standing up in front of the Sanhedrin and all the top knobs in Judaism of the day, in the open air, standing up and preaching boldly in the street, extempore, challenging, encouraging, urging response. I hope there'll be some opportunity in the spring for some streets preaching. Uh, uh, it's your job, Mike, to get that fixed up. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, um, but look at the others. In, in um, verse 32, it says um, that this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has raised up, and we are all witnesses. One preacher, lots of witnesses. They were all witnesses to Jesus and the fact that he was alive. That is really all you need. That Jesus and the fact that he's alive and in business and transforming people, That is the openness about our faith that we're called for in the church. Members so full of the Holy Spirit that they can't keep quiet, um, being it gentle witness to a friend over a coffee or in a pub, or clear explanation of the gospel in a public place, as I'm trying to do now. Do you know that power to witness? Have you got something to declare? And as we look forward to life to the fore, it comes to my final question. How should we respond to the Holy Spirit? Well, I guess that um, there are two right answers to that question. You see, you may be in the position of those disciples before Pentecost. Loyal to Jesus, believing He's the Son of God. Grateful for the church and all that it lays on, but still never having taken that initial personal step, which thousands did on the day of Pentecost and millions ever since, of receiving the Spirit of Jesus into your heart and life. You may have known God over us, you may have wondered with amazement at God alongside us, but you'd never welcomed God inside us and so the apostle Paul could say if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ he does not belong to him if you haven't got the spirit of Christ you're not fully a Christian that's what he's saying because this trinitarian God is not over us only and alongside us only but is in us if you know that that's your situation mercifully The answer is very simple. If it weren't, I wouldn't stand up here and say so. Jesus said this. If you, evil as you are, that's blunt, isn't it, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You can't earn it, you can't pay for it, you come humbly and ask. Jesus promised you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you I would urge you, even today if you know that you're a church person but you've never actually received the Holy Spirit ask him in a moment of quiet at the end of this talk say Lord, please come into my life I want you to be at the heart of things that's only the beginning but it's an (laughs) indispensable beginning and then tell somebody else who can help you. But probably others of us here have indeed welcomed the Holy Spirit into our lives, but somehow our love has grown cold. Other priorities have crowded in. Uh, Maybe there is some behavior, maybe there's some relationship that has got in the way that shouldn't be there. We need to get rid of it and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us and to flood our lives and equip us powerfully for service. We're going to need a church full of the Holy Spirit if we're going to proclaim life to the full. Or if some of you are going to go to the Ukraine um, later this summer. To go without being flooded by the Holy Spirit is a recipe for disaster. Be filled with the Spirit, says St. Paul to the Ephesians. And that's a present tense. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to end with two pictures One, uh, I was traveling in in Israel and Jordan on one occasion and it was a very desert sort of area, incredibly dry throat and all that sort of thing and burning heat. And coming around a corner, to my amazement, there was a little waterfall um, coming down a cliff face. First, you might never believe such a thing would be there. Second, you might say, goodness me, it is there, but it's nothing to do with me. Thirdly, you might get near enough to get splashed with some of the drops. If you've got sense, you go, in all your sweat and heat, you go and you stand under that waterfall. Let it wash you. Let it cleanse you. Let it revive you. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Open your mouth and drink it as it washes you. The other image is this. You may have sometimes been down by the seaside and um, you've seen uh, on the shale there um, a rowing boat um, upside down. It's empty. It's dark. It's no use. Where it is. That's the first snapshot. The second snapshot is that boat is um the right way up. it's got some people around and it's tied to the pier fore and aft. The third snapshot, you've got a man inside rowing, rowing, rowing hard, not making much progress. The fourth snapshot, you've got him erecting a sail. And the wind taking that boat and it cuts a furrow through the water. Four pictures of human lives. Some never receive the Spirit. They're upside down still. They're empty still. They need to be put the right way up. But others are, are Christians indeed. They are the right way up. But they're tied fore and aft, they're shackled with habits and stuff that have wrecked them. Those those horses need to be thrown off or cut. The third um, picture is of course how we struggle in our way to make some sort of headway um, in our daily lives Monday through Saturday. The fourth picture is when we have given up this struggle to live this impossible Christian life and allow the Holy Spirit to come and fill us and direct us and guide us. We erect the sail, so to speak, but he is the one who breathes the wind into it. And I'm going to suggest that we now have just a moment of quiet and um, think of that response some who need to ask for the Holy Spirit to come into their lives. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. That's where it all begins. And then there's others of us who need to ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us. Perhaps We're tied. Perhaps we're struggling. Perhaps we've never really allowed the Holy Spirit to act like wind in our sails.